You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, episode 82, brought to you by Vessi Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Hey folks, it's Greg here, back with another episode, and today I'm going to talk about pests in a no-till garden, myth versus reality. Um, the way no-till gardening, or back-to-eden gardening, or permaculture gardening is presented is this, basically that it solves every single problem you could possibly have. And uh, I'm a proponent of, of this approach, and I think it's a great approach, but it is not without um, its problems. And these are just things you have to chip away and, and, and work on as you problem solve season to season. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that and uh, give you some of the solutions uh, I've come up with uh, uh, as we go along here. But, you know, first I thought I would give you a sense of where things are uh, in terms of uh, my garden. I, I know gardeners like to compare notes. Um, it's been an unbelievably uh, challenging spring. Uh, uh, as, as those that are regular listeners know, I'm an avid angler and I've got a full-time job. So really I do my fishing on the weekend and uh, I've got a camp I like to go to and I like to do day trips and stuff like that. And it is it has rained like every weekend since February. <laughs> there might have been one weekend where it didn't, but like it has rained every weekend. That's just give you a sense of uh, it's just been dreary and overcast and not a lot of sun and uh, very challenging growing season. Uh, I guess my understanding is a lot of the local farmers here are having real problems uh, dealing with it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping things will turn around and we'll get some heat, but certainly this was not a year where you get a huge jump start in your garden. I mean, my my uh, the domes I have in my garden, uh, the various things I, I've, 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 I've used to uh, work around stuff have made, have made a you know to some extent a difference but even domes if there's no sunlight shining on them (laughs) they can't do a lot they can't make light right (laughs) what they can do is if you've got a cool day and some sunlight they can make it a lot warmer within the microclimate they've created but uh if you don't have that sun shining on them they really can't do much in there um they can i guess if you get a little bit of light coming through anyway um it's been a challenging year and i mean i guess you know the rhubarbs up and the strawberries are up but they're certainly not well well along I've even you know you're supposed to get a crop of strawberries in june it's june 1st saturday morning here as a record right now and uh i don't think i'll be getting strawberries till july <laughs> the way things are looking um and one of my uh, uh apple trees uh, Northern Spy, I believe, uh, just barely starting to butt out. I mean, things are really behind, really late. Um, now that said, I mean, I've got, uh, you know, I had my first salad about a week ago. Um, this is the spinach I planted around the uh, end of March under a plastic dome. Uh, some of that and some of the Swiss chard and some of the lettuce is, uh, but, but those are just the things that were planted under a dome, basically. Um, and, and also in the cold frames where I started some uh, kale as transplants. That kale is about, I guess, five inches high right now. That would have been kale I sowed end of March, beginning of uh, April sort of thing in a cold frame. Um, that's the only sowed vegetables in my garden that have any height. The uh, parsnips are maybe two or three inches high. Uh, beets and Swiss chard and all, you know, everything that hasn't been like under some sort of really protected, uh, microclimate is very tiny now that's not to say that there isn't root development going on i think a lot of plants when they're not getting the light they need but if they're still alive i think it's very possible there's some root development going on during those periods of time 
Anyway, that's a bit of an update on my garden. Uh, compare notes, give me your comments. I'm interested to hear, uh, you know, what's going on with yours and, and you know, make those comparisons. And of course, uh, you know, I'll be doing a garden update really, really soon on YouTube if you want to actually see what I'm talking about, see where things are in my garden if you're interested in that. Um, so to get back to our topic, pests in a no-till garden, uh, I think a lot of us, when we first become introduced to the notion of uh, no-till gardening, wood chip gardening, permaculture gardening. And I'm using all these different terms because uh, they, they, they don't all mean exactly the same thing, but uh, for the most, in terms of how I incorporate the systems in my garden, I use them interchangeably because they're all, you know, they're all coming from the same uh, approach in a sense. They're, they're all, to me, these are all different applications of permaculture. They're just uh, depending on how, uh, how extensive you want to be with it. Um, I think when we first learn about it and we see results that other gardeners are getting, you watch a documentary or some sort of, uh, you go to some sort of class and you see pictures and so on, uh, you become intoxicated with the notion of the low cost, low input, low work, ecologically responsible and sustainable <coughs> um, organic garden. Um, and uh, this notion about incorporating natural systems uh, in a garden is just uh, just wonderful and uh, you know just to back up a little bit if you're if you're new to all of this or if this is a concept you haven't heard of before uh, the general idea is you, you look at natural systems in nature a field or a forest and you notice that nobody's tending it no one's looking after it no one's fertilizing it no one's tilling it no one's putting pesticides on it no one's working at all in a forest but the forest is growing all on its own and then so you look at, well, what's a forest doing that my garden isn't doing? And one of the things, you, I mean, I'm just going to oversimplify here, but one of the things a forest is doing that maybe you're not doing in your garden is every single year, the ground, the soil, is covered with a fresh layer of organic matter. So if you look at the, the forest floor and you took a cross-section of that uh, soil, you just see layer after layer after layer after layer of applied mulches, right? The leaves that fall off the trees and little sticks and twigs and all that sort of stuff, right? And all these different uh, uh, bacteria and fungi and different organisms that are in the soil breaking all of that stuff down. And that provides the nutrients that all the different things that grow in the forest take up. So that's how a forest works. That's how a natural system works that it requires no maintenance. So it makes sense to incorporate some of that into a garden maybe the garden won't take so much work. I mean, when, when I came across that, uh, when I first learned about that approach to keeping garden, I changed my whole garden immediately because it made perfect sense to me. It was so logical and uh, I got really good results uh, in my first year. So yeah, so you bring in some mulch and you see what happens. And if you're, <clears throat> if you have any sort of experience like I did in year one, you get these amazing results. And then year two, the pests show up. I mean, I'm just speaking to my experience. And year three, there's pests. And year four, and so on and so on ad infinitum. Uh, seems like there's an increase in the pest population. And uh, that makes sense, right? Because you've got, by adding a mulch, you've added uh, this, this cover where all the pests can hide now. Not only that, but, uh, you know, we think about things like slugs and snails as this major garden problem, but they, they eat uh, organic material when it's breaking down. You know, a lot of the work, aside from the worms doing work, 
There's just different kinds of slugs and snails do a lot of work breaking down organic matter. They're actually beneficial in a sense. The only problem is they also like to eat uh, kale and you know other kinds of things, right? They eat a lot of different uh, vegetables, especially when they're really young. They love young, you know, tiny seedlings the most. That's when they're their most dangerous. Um, so you've created this ideal habitat for slugs and snails um, and possibly flea, be flea beetles as well. And uh, maybe you didn't have anywhere near as ideal an environment for those things before. Um, so, because they can hide, they can get away from birds better. So, uh, you start. So, what do you do? You you go to all the different organic gardening websites and gurus and and ask them for their advice. What do you do? You know, you read these articles on how to deal with pests. Top ten ways to deal with slugs, and you'll get um, different kinds of advice. You'll you get advice like. Uh, Oh, compost tea, you know, put compost tea all over the foliage of your plants and that'll keep the pest down. That, that'll boost their uh, natural resistance to pests or some, some, I would say, hogwash like that. I tried that. It doesn't do anything uh, when you've got a real pest problem. Um, talk, about, talk about, you know, beer traps. Put a little, you know, dish with some beer uh, recessed into the ground. That'll catch some slugs and it will catch some slugs. It'll catch some slugs in your garden. Uh, it won't catch the other 100,000 slugs in your garden <laughs> that weren't anywhere near the beer trap. <laughs> so we, <laughs> being a bit facetious here, but, uh, well, you know, especially when, maybe if your garden is like one four by 10 bed or something like that, if your garden is tiny, perhaps you can, man all, all the things I'm going to list off here and knock down as great solutions for pests. Um, maybe if your garden's small, they're functional, or maybe if you haven't really got uh, an incredible proliferation, proliferation of pests. Uh, I know I used to have a garden in the suburbs and uh, I didn't have any problems with pests at all. Nothing. I never used anything. I never had any problems. I just grew stuff and I thought it was because my plants were so healthy and all this sort of stuff. Um, it just turns out that there just wasn't a lot of pests where I was and you know <laughs> I was just really lucky. Um, so um, people say, oh, pick, you know, something like slugs, just pick them off. I mean, in certain pests, I mean, some of a flea beetle, you can't pick off flea beetles. They're tiny and they're fast. They're faster than you. Um, uh, certain, but even slugs, yeah, you could go, I could go out every morning at 5.30 a.m. and pick slugs off my plants. But I mean, that, I, I would miss a lot of them. And my garden's really big. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't see it as a function. I would have to be out there every single day, you know, and I've got like a family and a life and kids and a job and other interests. Uh, I don't want to spend an hour a day picking pests off my plants. And there seems to be an almost infinite number of slugs out there. Um, and uh, uh, what's the other one? Oh, you can, you know, just spray them off something like aphids. Just spray them off with a hose, you know, that, I mean, that works if you're there to do it. But what if you're, you know, away for a week on some business meeting or whatever, right? Um, you know, while you're not there every single day or twice a day spraying them off with a hose, your garden's getting wrecked. Um, you know, if, uh, dish soap can work a little bit, but <clears throat> soaps work a lot better if they're insecticidal. Uh, and if you add some sort of, uh, you know, toxin that's something that's toxic to insects like pyrethrin, and then the soap works really well. Um, so, yeah, dish soaps okay but there's i think uh stronger yet safer approaches uh eggshells you know putting eggshells around a plant that'll keep slugs off i've done lots of experiments in my garden i've not found that eggshells in, in in various configurations i've just smashed them up 
I've used a mortar and pestle. I've even put them in a um, coffee grinder and made a fine powder to make a really nice sort of diatomaceous earth type thing. None of that kept slugs off my plants, um, you know. So, uh, you know, all of those uh, uh, super, you know, the things that I guess one might argue don't have any sort of chemical constituents. I mean, they all, all of these things have chemical constituents because they're made of, of, of substances and matter, right? Uh, like the eggshells, I mean, like calcium carbonate, you know, basically these are all chemicals of various kinds. Um, so, honestly, you know, the stuff you read on blogs, it's just... It's hard to know uh, how many of these articles are are just regurgitating stuff other people have read, or how many of these articles are written by people that are gardening in, in maybe a backyard in a city or a suburb. And it's, perhaps it's different where I am, where I'm, I'm, uh, my garden is is carved into a wild forest, and there's just you know it's like there's a forest, and then there's a bit of a field, and then there's my garden. Um, and uh, perhaps that's the reason I, I have so many pests in my garden. I don't really know. Um, but I do know is that when I switched to having a no-till garden with a mulcher where the, the number of pests increased. increased. Um, so uh, some of these uh, you know, super benign things I just listed, they, they may work in some situations. They may work if you really haven't got an incredible... Let's say you have 100 slugs in your garden as opposed to a thousand or a hundred thousand <laughs> maybe these things will work um, uh, but they're uh, even if they do work they're not scalable to a large garden you know if, if you're trying to uh, my goal my personal goal for my garden is to grow as much of my own food as possible um, in a garden that I can manage myself um, with the time I have uh, so there's you know I, I find somewhere between 20, 2,500, 3,000 feet is probably all I can manage on my own. Um, and when you're gardening on that scale, uh, going around and picking slugs off of plants is just not workable. Or, you know, putting, you know, 80 beer traps <laughs> in the garden is just not going to work. It is not, and it's also not practical Practical if, uh, if you have a busy, busy lifestyle. I mean, there's a lot of days during the week I might only get out there for five minutes, right? So, uh, yeah, I just don't have uh, time for a lot of these different kinds of solutions. And I'm also not convinced they work that well. Or, uh, I, you know, the, the time you would need uh, would be incredible. And I'm still not convinced they'd be particularly effective, uh, depending on the scale of the problem. So for the remainder of this episode, I'm going to tell you uh, what I have found works for me learning, you know, over the process of my learning how to uh, you know, adopt this system in my garden. And let me just preface all of that by saying, no, I've never really taken a course in permaculture. Um, I, I don't, generally speaking, I, I'm not drawn to these kinds of courses. I don't think there's a lot of quality control over who's teaching them. Uh, you know, if you're interested in permaculture, my, my advice to you would be to, uh, especially if you're a backyard gardener, I, I would find a copy. You can find it online for free. I'm not going to set and add a link to it, but I, I have found it certainly just a Google search permaculture too. Um, there's a PDF you can download. Um, just basically read the book that was written by the guy that explained how to do this thing, <laughs> Permaculture 2. Uh, permaculture 1 is more about like uh, uh, permaculture in a in a uh, agricultural setting, you know, large-scale farming and so on. Permaculture 2 is about adopting that system in a backyard gardening, a small-scale type setting. So uh, for me, in my mind anyway, uh, I mean, some people like 
taking the course and being there with the person, but I don't like spending the money for the course, especially when I've got no idea who the person is. Um, also, the course is short, whereas you can sit down and read the book <laughs> and think about it all you like. Uh, it's just more my, and it's also cheaper, <laughs> right? <laughs> if, if you have the book the course is based on and you can read, uh, read the book and think about it and just get out there in your garden and do some trial and error and learn and learn and learn and adapt. Um, and never think of these books as Bibles. Uh, you don't have to do what the book says. It's a guideline, right? Uh, and things evolve, right? That's a, a book written in the 70s or the 80s. I can't remember when it was written in the 70s or the 80s. Um, I'm sure if uh, Bill Mollison was still alive and he was to rewrite Permaculture 2, he would change some things. And 50 years from now, he want to change it again, right? Um, so that's my general approach. Now, <laughs> let me just say that when I put the mulch down, when I covered everything, when I did that, I did get an increase in pests. But what also gradually is going to happen over time is that the things that prey upon those pests are going to increase in number as well. <clears throat> I've had a lot of different permaculture people uh, on YouTube and, and uh, listen to the podcast say, you need ducks, you need chickens, you need... Cornish hens or whatever, you know, you need birds. Uh, and I find that kind of uh, interesting because uh, anytime you walk out into my garden, a number of birds will fly out of it. There are birds in my garden all the time. Uh, robins, sparrows, finches. I mean, there's, there's an incredible variety of birds in my garden all the time, all the time. They're probably out there right now. I always have birds in my, not just one or two ducks, right? Uh, you know, at any given moment, there's probably a dozen birds in my garden. There are always birds in my garden, and they're not eating my plants. They're eating other things. They're eating weed seeds. They're eating bugs, right? They're eating my slugs. They're eating my snails. And what I think happens over time uh, is, what have you done in creating this garden? You've created something that a bird can see from the sky. You've got different migratory birds that come in and out of your area. And over time, those birds, because they come back, will recognize your garden as a place for an easy meal. And sure, they're going to take some of your worms, but they're not going to pass up a nice snail <laughs> while they're rooting about for, room, for worms. And I can see them working out there all the time because I've got mulch everywhere. You can see where the mulch has been pushed aside. And they're looking for something in there, some grub or something like that, some 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 big, especially in the spring. You know, in the spring, when uh, your plants are most vulnerable to pests because they're young and, and, and fragile and tiny, uh, that's when most birds are looking for insects to feed their young. They've got, you know, they've laid their eggs and their young is uh, hatching. And uh, during that period of time, broad range of birds in nature are looking for insects to feed those birds, feed those babies. And your garden is full of those things, right? So yes, you may get an increase in the pest population in your garden when you put a mulch down, but then that will bring around the things that prey upon those pests and their numbers will increase. Um, and I'm not just talking about birds. Uh, I'm talking about uh, other insects that eat those things <clears throat> and also things like uh, toads and garter snakes and things like that right you're just going to get more and more things that prey upon those things so it will balance out over time 
and I'm starting to notice that probably this year. It, it takes a number of years. It's not going to be immediate. There's no magic here, right? You're, you're, you're changing your ecosystem by adding all this mulch. And so the organisms respond to that change. And it's not going to happen on your schedule. It's going to happen on their schedule. So while you're waiting for everything to balance out, <laughs> you know, and I'm still waiting for it to balance out. This year seems better than previous years, but I still have uh, slug snails and flea beetles and that stuff. But I, I don't seem to notice the slugs as, so far this season. Where we're into June now, the slugs haven't been as bad this year as as previous years. Um, but uh, certainly I've I've still got flea beetles, and I guarantee I'll have uh, white fly. And those are my main three main three problems in my garden: are slugs, snails. I'm using slugs and snails as the same thing. They basically are uh, white fly and flea beetles. Um, so I've got those things in my garden. Um, and my approach is is to, to have them around because I want to draw in the things that prey upon them, uh, but to manage them when my plants are really young and vulnerable so that my plants can get to a certain size. And then once they're, you know, maybe six or seven inches high, um, at least my experience, they can handle all of those pests. They don't really have any, with the exception of the white fly. Um, but certainly the slugs, the snails, and flea beetles, once my plants are of a certain size, they can, they seem to be able to handle, uh, I can see the damage on the lower leaves. Uh, once your plants get large, it seems like the lower leaves that are slightly discolored, um, those are the ones that get attacked the most. And, the, and the, the, the leaves on top that are nice and green and look really healthy, they seem to leave those things alone, perhaps because they're, they're hiding they're staying down low to hide from birds and stuff like that. Perhaps they prefer the shade. So once the plant gets big enough that it makes its own shade, I think those pests, they really can't get into the stem because it becomes more woody. And they're, they're focusing on the lower lower leaves because they're hiding and they have a preference for shade. I think that's what's going on. So there's a point in the season where you don't need it to use anything um, and you don't want to use anything because you want to have all those pests around so that the things that eat those pests can, can increase in number and be drawn to your garden. So you, so you don't want to wipe out all your pests. You want your pests around because eventually you want a garden that takes care of itself. And if you have enough things that prey upon pests, your garden's going to take care of itself, right? It's just going to balance out. Um, you might lose a few things here or there, but, you know, so it seems to be uh, that slugs and snails, in my garden anyway, seem to be on the downside this season. I'm noticing way more birds in my garden, uh, a lot of activity like that, and I think that's what they're, they're after. I think the slugs and snails are a bit easier to find. Certainly, uh, really early in the morning, they're out. Um, I mean, of course, they take some of my worms, too. But I'm just going to talk about a few different categories of, of plants. Um, that and uh, my observations with with growing these things and, and what you need to do. So <clears throat> I found lettuce and spinach are I have found anyway. Maybe there's I'm sure there's different varieties where there's different results, but at least the varieties I use, uh, lettuce and spinach are pest free. You might get the odd hole here or there, but they don't get taken out the way certain other kinds of greens do. Also Swiss chard. I would add that lettuce, spinach, Swiss chard. Um, they don't seem to be uh, damaged too much by pests. In the gardens where I have those things planted, I don't really have to use any products of any kind or affect any kinds of solutions. So I, I tend to plant them together. Like I'll plant a row of spinach and a row of lettuce and a row of a row of uh, Swiss chard and that sort of thing. Um, and that garden just is maintenance free. 
So uh, I'd be interested to hear other people's uh, observations about those things, lettuce, spinach, and Swiss chard. I, I, you know, I do get the odd bite and that, and that sort of thing in the foliage, but they don't get wiped out um, like other things. They seem to be, it's like the pests don't like them as much. Um, uh, also peas, I mean, perhaps it's because they're planted really early, but I don't find my peas to be uh, uh, damaged too much either. They seem to, you know, uh, it seems to be rare that the peas are taken out by slugs and snails. They seem to get up just fine. Um, uh, another category of plant that I find really I don't have to do anything with regard to pests is um, tomatoes and potatoes. Uh, I stick them in the ground and they grow and uh, you know, you'll see the odd slug or snail on them, but they don't seem to cause any damage, right? Especially potatoes. When my potatoes get full grown. I'll notice that there's uh, snails uh, sometimes uh, working on the foliage of the potatoes, but it doesn't seem to do anything negative to the plant. The plant seems to just take it. Uh, I think potatoes are so vigorous, they, they outgrow the, the little bit of damage that's happening. And you'll see a lot of birds in around your and, and snakes and stuff like that in, in, in around your potatoes. Probably they like the cover; it's a nice, safe place to hide. And there's lots of little bugs down there they can get at. So, uh, yeah, uh, potato, uh, potatoes and tomatoes are another one that I find to be uh, pest-free, just based on my experience. Uh, and this is one of those. Uh, certainly, the people on YouTube tend to comment a lot. Uh, if you've got uh, conflicting. Uh, observations for these the things I'm listing here you tell me about it I'm really interested to uh, to understand that I'm not saying I'm right I'm just telling you what I'm experiencing right um, now uh, eggplant and peppers for some reason I mean tomatoes potatoes eggplant and peppers they're all sort of in the same family but for some reason eggplant and peppers I found are a bit more vulnerable to slugs and snails um, I don't know why um, and sometimes they're not but I've had gardens where I've planted uh, peppers uh, and the slugs have gone at them, and I've had uh, eggplants when they're really, really young be taken out as well. I don't quite understand that. Um, so, you, you know, for those, uh, because eggplant and pepper will get attacked by slugs when they're really young, I mean, I don't worry about it when they're bigger. It's when they're really, really young, the little, you know, three inch, four inch seedlings. I'll put a little bit of that, uh, the slug bait. Uh, I guess I'll plug my sponsor, Safers. I use it. They give it to me, so I, I use it. Uh, Safers uh, Slug and Snail Killer. Um, if you listen to the episode, I'm not going to go into uh, justifying that the uh, the, the chemical uh, composition of this uh, of this uh, pesticide is is safe for your garden. I did an episode with Dr. Joe Schwartz. Uh, very, it's worth listening to uh, if you're interested. But we we talked about all of the uh, various chemical compositions of the three pesticides I use in my garden and how they're all benign and that if you're if you're keeping a if you want an organic garden and you you have to use something to avoid losing everything I would use these things because what the, the constituents that they're that com comprise these these pesticides uh, they break down into things in your garden that are just naturally occurring and benign so we don't have to worry about it at least in, in my opinion anyway, and based on my understanding and based on talking to actual chemists <laughs> like Joe Schwartz, <laughs> I am not worried about uh, using these products in my garden. I consider my garden to be an organic garden uh, using these. And by the way, I only use these things sparingly. You know, uh, for instance, uh, when the eggplants, and just speaking to eggplants and peppers, I only use it when they're small. 
and then when they're vulnerable. Once they reach a certain size, I stop using it. Again, I want the slugs and I want the snails in my garden because I want the things that eat them to say, hey, this is a great place to live. I'm going to have a thousand babies and we're just going to prey upon these things and have a great time here, right? So I want to bring around the predators, right? The, the pest predators. Uh, what's the other thing here? Beans. Uh, I have found beans to be vulnerable to slugs and snails. Uh, I don't seem to have any problem with whitefly with beans. Uh, and uh, I don't, of course, the, the whitefly are sort of specific to coal crops, kale and, you know, broccoli and collards and stuff like that. Um, I don't find flea beetles to be a problem with beans, but certainly slugs and snails. So uh, what I, but once they get to a certain size, they're fine. Again, it's, it's a lot of these things. You, you, you don't keep hammering your soil with, with pesticides. Number one, it's just a waste of money. Number two, it's just it's just not needed, and you want those pests around again, right? So when the when the beans first come out of the ground, that's when they're vulnerable to slugs and snails. That's when they seem to be able to, because they can just cut the top off, right? Um, so when this bean first comes out of the ground, yeah, it's between two, three, four inches high. I'll put a bit of the slug and snail bait down. Um, it doesn't that, that that bait doesn't kill all the snails. It just kills the ones that are around at that point in time. So it gives the beans a chance <laughs> to get up and get some size. And once they're you know maybe once they're about six inches high or something like that, it seems like the, uh, the slugs and snails aren't a problem anymore. I mean they're still around, but uh, they can take they can take it at that point in time. Uh, so that's what I do for that. I, one application, one one light application of the slug and snail killer gives the beans a chance. And then once they're a certain size, you don't need to add it anymore. Um, also, uh, things like uh, squash and cucumbers, when they put out their first leaves and they're really tiny, they are vulnerable to slugs and slugs will take them out. Uh, I'd say if you grew 10 squash in a garden that had slugs in it, uh, you'd probably lose between five and seven of those squash. <laughs> now, once the squash gets a bit bigger and it puts out the second set of leaves and so on, the stem of the squash and the leaves of the squash get this spiny texture that slugs and snails do not like. So once it gets to that stage in its development, you don't need to use anything to protect it. It protects itself. Uh, for that matter, I found them even, you know, uh, fairly resistant. I, I plant squash outside my garden enclosure because um, I, I have found that uh, the deer and the different things out there seem to leave them alone. I think they touch that foliage. It looks like this this lush foliage, but I think they touch it with their mouth and it's got this spiny texture and they just don't want it, right? Um, but there's a period, maybe two weeks long, where they don't have that and they're really vulnerable. So that's when I use uh, slug and snail killer. So, you know, slug and snail killer comes in a container. It might be uh, one liter in volume. And, I mean, remember, I've got a pretty big garden. But one of those containers will last me two or three years, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> don't need a lot, right? Um, now, what's the other thing? The uh, So, we'll wrap up here with the final, the trifecta. So, the garden that has the most problems for me is or the, the the plant the category of plant is all those different coal crops the kale uh, broccoli collards kohlrabi uh, broccolini uh, you know rapini all those sorts of things are all in the same kind of category and they're all related to mustards 
Um, all of those things I find, uh, I have a problem with every pest. The slugs get at them, the snails get at them, the flea beetles get at them when they're tiny, and the white fly get at them. The flea beetles are so damaging, and it doesn't seem to matter where I plant them. The flea beetles get in there, and they just go to work, and uh, they attack the plant when it's teeny, teeny, tiny, and they stunt it so bad it never amounts to anything. So if you cannot, you know, if you're trying to grow uh, anything along that, that category, I'm going to just use the word kale to speak, to stand for all these things because it's the most popular, I guess, the most, uh, you know, the diet kale. And I grow a lot of kale because I, I just like it. I do like it, but I, I don't make salad. I, I cook it. But anyway, um, anything you're growing, uh, broccoli or cauliflower or collards or kohlrabi, if you're having a problem with uh, flea beetles, um, you're, you're just not going to get anywhere <laughs> if you can't deal with the flea beetles because the plants won't won't grow they won't get past that infancy stage because the flea beetles will uh, those first two leaves the plant puts out the plant need those leaves job is to gather energy and send it back to the roots so the plant has enough energy to put it in another set of leaves the seed has enough energy in it for the first two leaves from that point on it's a photosynthesis game and if you've got a pest just damaging those two leaves it's, it's basically limiting the plant's ability to eat. It's ability to eat light, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and do photosynthesis. Um, so you have to protect them. So what I have found at that stage, so when the plants are really, really tiny, you got, I got to put the slug bait down to prevent, if the slugs are around, if I'm noticing, you'll notice slugs damage because you'll, you'll just notice the plants are disappearing. Like you'll, you'll just see a teeny tiny stem and no leaves, right? That's a slug. If you notice if there's leaves, but they're pump, pop, pop full of holes, like someone took a teeny tiny shotgun to them, that's white fly. So the, the best approach for the slugs is the slug and snail killer, at least in my experience, at least and on the scale. I'm, you know, if you want to go out there and pick them off and so on and so forth, you have at it. But I found for me, for me, for the scale I'm doing things on, it seems to work better. Um, and for the flea beetles, I find the product, they, it's a pyrethrin-based uh, pesticide pyrethrin is a, uh, a chemical that's uh, derived from chrysanthemums and it it uh, breaks down fairly quickly in the environment and doesn't really uh, you know I've been using it on my gardens for uh, quite some time and it's, it's not like a garden I use it and has no no worms or other life forms right it, it, it basically kills the things that are on your plants um, and it breaks down really fast so it's a it's a one-shot sort of deal um, so and, and the uh, uh, Safer's Endol is basically a kind, it's an insecticidal soap with pyrethrin added to it. That's the simplest way to explain what it is. You can go, you can listen to the episode I did with Dr. Joe Schwartz about uh, four weeks ago, or just go look the stuff up on your own and, and study it for, uh, for yourself. And if you uh, have any insights or comments or whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear them. Um, but that, for me, is the best way to deal with flea beetles. Uh, the row covers are another approach. Uh, I don't find them, uh, just uh, number one, I don't find them to last multiple years. Uh, number two, I just find them to be uh, a bit of a pain in terms of you have to take them off and put them back on and keep them from blowing away. And number three, if the flea beetles are already un, like in the soil, in that garden, I mean, all you're doing is by putting a row cover on, you're protecting that garden from all the birds that would be coming in to eat all your pests. So, I mean, the row cover is a great solution if there if 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 there's nothing there, 
right? If there's if there's no pests in your garden, the row cover is a great way to keep pests out. But if the pests are there, you're protecting them from a lot of the things that are flying around that would do, uh, help take them away. So I don't see the the row cover as the ultimate solution. I think in in some case, if you can get it on before there's anything around, that's possible. Um, then it's a great solution. But if 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 the, if the pests are in there, then you're just protecting them. <laughs> Right, so <laughs> I think it's a, a mixed bag. Uh, whereas when if you just go out, at, you know, so I find uh, you know early in the morning and then and even in the evening if you give them a blast. And I mean I'm talking about uh, once a week I'll go out in the garden and give it a blast. So I mean the flea beetles are still around, all these pests are still around. I'm just giving the plants a little bit of a break um, so they can grow a little bit and achieve a little size. Because again, once they're a certain size, you don't need any of this stuff. And in terms of quantity, um, you can buy the uh, the Endol in a concentrate. I think it's about a it might be a one liter. I don't even think it's one liter. It's probably 750 mil. Um, and sorry, Americans, that's like a quart. 750 mils is like a quart. Um, <clears throat> so um, that's that concentrate will last you years and like multiple years, unless because again, you're not using this every day or once a week for the entire season. You're you're using it when your plants are really young and really vulnerable. So they can get to a size where they can just shrug these things off, um, and hopefully over time, um, you just get a proliferation of predators for those things in your garden, and you don't need. I mean, my, I mean, I'm sure my sponsors aren't, uh, don't want to hear this, but my main goal is not to need any of these things, right? My my goal is to have a garden that is uh, such a such a balanced ecosystem that there are pests and there's predators of pests. And I've got my plants, and the plants get a little bit of damage, but for the most part, most of them make it, and I don't need to go around using anything. That's my goal. I don't want to use anything. Now, to speak to the other thing that plagues the coal crops, and that's the, the white fly or the cabbage moth. Um, so this is a, a white butterfly that you'll see flitting around your garden, and it lays eggs on collards, kohlrabi, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, things like that, uh, cabbage lays its eggs on them and those eggs turn into caterpillars and uh, at night while you're sleeping those caterpillars destroy your plants completely destroy your plants um, so uh, if you can get a row cover over your garden before the the white fly lays its eggs then the row cover will protect them from that pest um, uh, the only drawback I can see of using a row cover in that situation is that the other pests uh, the slugs and the flea, flea beetles, uh, while the row cover is on there, the, the natural predators of those things, especially birds, have no means of getting in there to, to, to feed on those things. So while your row cover is protecting the plant from uh, the, uh, the white fly, uh, it's, it's preventing the beneficials from uh, getting at the garden and doing their thing. Uh, so that's that's a drawback in my opinion. Also, every time you want to get at your plants, you got to take this this row cover off. And uh, where I live, I can't just throw uh, a mesh over a garden. I have to weight it down with rocks and everything so it doesn't blow away. Because everything will blow away if I, it's really windy where I am. So having to deal with that's a bit of a pain. But the main reason for me to not do it is that it's a, a detriment. It deters the beneficials from getting in and doing their thing. I mean, pollination isn't a problem for all the for those greens for the most of them, because um, you don't need them to be pollinated. They're not, they're not producing a fruit. You're just eating the greens, right? Um, so uh, 
So what I do is use, I mean, you could use the, uh, the end doll, that will work if you can get contact uh, with uh, the pest. Um, so if you were just going to get one thing, I'd get that. But I have found if you get a little bottle of uh, BTK, that's uh, Bacillus thuringiensis kerstaki, uh, I think. Uh, if I pronounced that wrong, uh, don't, uh, don't, don't uh, crucify me for that. Um, anyway, it's a tiny little bottle, maybe 200 mils and you mix a little like a teaspoon in with a gallon of water and don't quote me on that it's it's something like that that ratio it's a very small amount you mix in with some water and you uh, it breaks down very quickly once you mix that in with the water uh, i think after 12 hours it's useless so you got to use it right away and you'd, you'd put that on the plant oh like after supper sort of thing before sunset because the those uh, those pests will show up uh, when the sun goes down and just start feeding all night. Remember, this is much later in the summer, July-ish, you know, July, August, when the white fly shows up. Uh, so the caterpillars and whatever will hide on the underside of the leaves and not do much during the day. But once the sun goes down, they go to work. So if you've put this uh, uh, BTK, which is a bacteria, it's a natural occurring bacteria that's in the soil that just happens to destroy the stomach, uh, destroy uh, caterpillars. It's very specific to caterpillars, and it breaks down very quickly. Um, so you put that on around supper time sort of thing, and they eat your plants at night. They eat it, it gets in them, and it ends them. They just die. They all die. <laughs> so uh, it really, really does. You only uh, I have found with my greens, because there's a certain time of year that these uh, white flies show up so you only and it's about a two week three week period so I found like two applications of it is pretty much all that's needed maybe three in a season like once a week for three weeks sort of thing it seems to do the job to solve that problem and if you don't solve it you'll get you know get these caterpillars all over your plants and yes you can pick them off and you can go looking for the eggs but when you're again when you're growing kale on the scale that I grow it on that's a bit of a ridiculous proposition unless you were going to spend hours and hours and hours out in your garden all the time which I don't so I found that works really well and a tiny little bottle of it will last years and years and years um, and it's I think it's like maybe 20 bucks a bottle or something like that or 10 bucks up somewhere in that range right uh, so that's the solution I use for that problem so to sum, if you were going to change your conventional garden to a no-till garden employing a heavy mulch system, I, I like to consider that uh, using a permaculture approach. Yes, you, you are changing the ecosystem in your garden, so you're going to have changes in your pest population. And I, from my experience, the first wave of that change is an increase in the population of slugs and snails and things like flea beetles. But over time, other things will show up that take those things out and the problem will, will gradually decrease as as, you, as the population of predators increases in your garden and you're, you're also going to get a lot more birds and I have not found any bird to be a problem in terms of eating my uh, vegetation and lots of people say oh the birds ate my peas the birds ate this the birds ate I think what's really happening uh, I can't speak to every case if you looked really closely uh, the birds are eating the things that are eating your vegetables right because most birds aren't herbivores right they uh, with the exception of like chickens and stuff like which will eat anything but most of the birds that have nests and little you know chicks and stuff like that they're looking for bugs or seeds but certainly when they when they're when their uh, chicks have just hatched they're they're looking for protein they're looking for fat they're looking for bugs worms and grubs and and different kinds of things like that so they're a complete beneficial in your garden i've never found any bird to be a problem in my garden
Uh, sometimes it looks like they're eating your plants, but they're actually eating the things that are eating your plants. That's it. So, you know, you, you use these various uh, products. You find some products. I recommend the Safer's line of products. Find some things that uh, you're okay with that aren't going to damage, uh, you know, damage the ecosystem that are going to, you know, uh, aren't going to damage the other forms of life in your soil. Uh, if, if you want to use the beer trap, you know, compost tea dish. So, you know, if you want to, if that's all working for you, use that, <laughs> you know, but uh, I'm speaking to the person who's tried all these things and it's not working because that's what I, I tried all of these things and nothing worked. And when I switched to these things, um, and just to speak to that point, you know, Safers is my sponsor, but they didn't contact me. I bought some of their stuff at a, a garden center and used it and it worked. And I called them say, hey, how about you sponsor my podcast? Uh, I use your stuff and I think it's good. And I got no problem telling other people to use it. Uh, I'm totally comfortable with, uh, you know, how it affects the ecology of my garden. I'm not worried about, you know, toxicity or anything like that. The, the chemical constituents of these products are, are things that uh, I think are okay and consistent with what makes an organic garden organic i'm not worried about it so you know we worked out a deal and they actually pay for this podcast i don't really make i don't personally really make any money off of them they cover the costs of doing this podcast and related costs to doing the podcast i don't really want i might, I might like i might walk away with enough money for a big mac combo uh <laughs> after all is said and done uh the money they give me goes into making this podcast available uh, but I contacted them and I, you know, usually, you know, like I, I get lots of different companies uh, contacting me saying, hey, we got this great thing. Why don't you sell it? And I'll look at it and say, I would never use that thing. That's a waste of money. No, I don't want your money. And because I can't tell, I can't in good conscience tell anyone to use that thing. I think it's useless. In the case of this sponsor, because I used their stuff, it solved my problem. And I was completely comfortable with the chemical constituents of those problem, uh, those products in terms of. Uh, the uh, ec ecological impact they, they would have in my garden. I consider the ecological impact uh, benign and not, not a concern. So anyway, there's another episode wrapped up. I hope that's uh, useful for you. And if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to help support my podcast, check out my sponsors, Safers and Vessi Seeds. If there's anything they sell that you need, buy it from them. Use my coupon codes. Uh, you can see them in the uh, description box if you're on YouTube or if you're uh, on my podcast website. It's just in the show notes. Um, you can use use those coupon codes. That just lets them know that people are buying their stuff because they're listening to me. And that uh, helps me uh, get funding for uh, putting this podcast out and will help me grow the show over time. I hope you found that interesting. If you did, please like, share, subscribe. Uh, check out my YouTube. If you like the podcast channel and you want to see me live in action and see my garden and that sort of stuff, check out my YouTube channel. You got lots and lots of videos. And until next time, get out there, get at it, have fun in your garden. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.